Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This was the famous line from the book that I referenced last week, The Mortification of Sin, by the great Puritan author John Owen. And he he made that claim, he uh, fashioned that after reading Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, which tells us to put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly within you. Mortification means to kill. To mortify means to kill. And so he asks that question that is pertinent for our sermon today. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to kill your sin? Because as long as you are not killing sin, sin is killing you. Do you mortify? He's asking us about whether we rage war with the flesh. Do we rage war against our own sin? And it's a pertinent question not just to Colossians chapter 3, but it's an extremely important question for our sermon text today. If you would please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We are going to finish the fifth chapter of Galatians. And in many ways, you're going to see Paul's continuous thought throughout this section because much of what we discussed last week is in the sermon text as well. Today, he is continuing this train of thought. Last week, he presented with us with these two categories, the fleshly categories and the spiritual categories, those who live by the flesh and those who live by the spirit. And he's going to continue to expound upon those categories and then remind us of what our duty is And what we do with it. So if you would please begin reading with me in verse 19. For these are the very words of God. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, this is a well-known passage of Scripture because it contains the famous, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Many Christians have the fruit of the Spirit memorized. It's popular in Christian homes to have it, you know, put on some piece of artwork and hung on the wall. Many people sort of consider it the New Testament Ten Commandments, They say, we don't need the Ten Commandments in our house. We'd rather have the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Paul calls us to. It's a popular thing, especially in children's ministries, ministries, vacation Bible school, Awana, things like that. They will memorize the fruit of the Spirit, and for good reason. 
But what you are going to find today as we work through the sermon is I'm not going to spend so much time on the vice list and the virtue list. That's, that's what Paul does, right? He, he reminds us the works of the flesh and he lists out these list of sins. If we wanted to do a sermon series on what we call homardiology, which is the study of sin, hamartia is the Greek word for sin, and so to study sin is homartiology, we would really spend a lot of time breaking down all of these lists of sins that he presents to us in this vice list. And vice versa, we could spend an entire sermon series breaking down every one of the individual fruits of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, I've sat through many sermon series which goes through these fruits and been quite edifying. There's a time and a place to really break these words down. But I think that to understand Paul's overall train of thought, we don't need to focus so much on identifying exactly what every one of these things mean, where else it's found in Scripture, etc., etc. For example, Paul himself says in verse 19, when speaking about the works of the flesh, he says, now the works of the flesh are, ESV puts the word evident, uh, but your translation might say something like obvious. Paul knows that he's merely giving us a brief refresher. Right, this is a refresher. He just, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what you already know. This isn't supposed to surprise us. We're not supposed to go, oh, wait a minute. Sexual immorality and impurity are out of bounds for the Christian? What? Since when? Right, these things are supposed to be obvious. And so we are going to spend little time on these in the hopes of really focusing on what I think is Paul's overall point. But let's look at these lists. So last week, Paul presented us with works of the flesh. He presented us with the fleshly person, the fleshly-minded human being, him who lives according to his nature that he inherited from Adam versus those who have been filled with the Spirit and who live according to the power of the Spirit that is given to them by faith. And so he says, the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious, but let me just remind you some of them. These, these are, if you're doing these things, then you are ultimately becoming a slave to the fallen nature that you inherited. The works of the flesh are what? Verses 19. He, I could argue you'd really categorize these into three main categories. There's personal or internal sins. He mentions things like fits of anger, impure sexual passions and drunkenness. Right? These are evil desires, evil emotions that we have to curb. Our anger is supposed to be something that we control, that doesn't control us. Drinking is supposed to be something that we control, that doesn't control us. Our passions, our impure passions are things that we are supposed to put to death, not allow to overcome us. So there's these internal personal sins. He even mentions specific religious sins. In verse 20, he begins by talking about idolatry, which is worshiping false gods. And then there's the, an interesting one, one that I will spend just a minute on, is this word for sorcery. Now, why is sorcery interesting? Forgive me, let me fix this, distracting me. Uh, so sorcery is where we actually get the, uh, our English word for pharmacy from. The Greek word underneath this is where we get our Greek word for pharmacy. And sorcery kind of is used in Scripture with a, a, a more broad range of definitions. It, it, it can be specifically drug use. Right? So if you are doing drugs, that is not from the Spirit. 
Um, but typically, the way that the word here for drugs is used, it is usually used in a ritualistic sense. Um, I don't think it means that you can go off and do drugs outside of a religious context. That's not the point. But the reason they translate it as sorcery is because oftentimes these were drugs that were used in sort of pagan cultic rituals. Specifically, a lot of times they were potions and poisons that people would create to curse people or to try to harm people. And so specifically here, what Paul has in mind is doing drugs, especially within a kind of cultic religious context. And I will just say as a brief side note, it's amazing to me how often people who uh, have been involved in heavy drug addiction will often have story after story about demonic religious experiences that they encounter through their drug addictions. Very few people get into drugs because of cultic worship. But once people get into drugs, it's amazing how quickly they find religion. Not a good one. They find spirituality. Drugs have this interesting connection to the spiritual realm and not in a good way. And so Paul warns us from drug addiction, cultic uses of drugs, witchcraft, poison, all of those things are obviously outside the bounds of Christianity He mentions these internal sins, these religious sins, but I would argue what he's really focusing on, and we saw this a little bit last week, are corporate sins, or maybe I shouldn't say corporate sins, but I should say communal sins, sins that we can only engage with one another, right? You can be angry on your own, you can be drunk on your own, you can practice idolatry on your own, but there are sins in here that require sinning against others. It requires a community. He, he, he talks, I mean, obviously sexual immorality in a large point plays into that. But he talks so much about things like jealousy and envy and divisions and disputes and factions. He's focusing so much on sins which end up dividing and tearing people apart. When we are envy and when we are jealous and we are causing divisions and we are disputing among one another, we ravage the communal experience. And that's why he, he, he goes back to this. He leaves the vice list and then he sort of has to go back, look at verse 26. After he may, has made his point, he has to remind them of these specific sins again. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so what we've seen from last week and this week is Paul is particularly concerned with the division and the animosity and the jealousy that he is seeing in the Galatian churches. And I think that we can sort of tie it back to the infiltration of the false teachers. I think they're accountable for, for putting this in the body and spreading it. Paul is trying his hardest to unite these people, to bring them back to a place of unity. And here's what's key. Paul knows that ceremony doesn't do that. The Judaizers have come in and they're pushing ceremony, ceremony, ceremony. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to obey the feasts. You've got to obey the new moons. You've got to do all of these external things. But what does Paul know? That's not changing you. Our ceremonies aren't changing us. That's not going to create division. That's not going to create unity. So Paul goes after the specific error in the body. Your problem is not that you're not circumcised. Your problem is that you envy one another. That's your problem. So he is particularly concerned in this vice list with sins that break and divide the body and divide our unity. And one last thing before I move on to what he says is the dire consequence of living these kinds of lifestyles. 
is there is one particular aspect here that I want to draw our attention to, and it is what I refer to oftentimes as some of these are respectable sins. There's a book, I think it's by the same title, a book, Respectable Sins. And what that means is that, unfortunately, in the Christian life, we learn to tolerate some sins much better than others. I would imagine that it's not that difficult for us to, to, to read this list and say, yeah, our church body probably shouldn't be practicing sexual immorality and orgies and idolatry and drug addictions. Yeah, if, if, if any of you are engaged in that, it's, the church is pretty clearly going to know and it, we're going to consider it a problem. But notice how often he focuses on other things that typically are not seen as very problematic, like envy. Do you envy your neighbor? I would imagine, if speaking on behalf of myself, this is a particular issue especially in the day of social media. Because remember, the Ten Commandments specifically said not to covet your neighbor's possessions. And you know why that's phrased that way? Well, because back then, your neighbor was the only possessions you could see. Right? If you're living in the Near East, you don't know what people in Native America have. You don't see them. Your neighbor is the only one you can covet. But we live in a day and age now where anyone from all over the world can show you what stuff they have. We see, we scroll through our phones all day long, looking at everyone else's life. And it's hard to, I can speak for myself, it's nearly impossible to avoid. What that turns into is, I wish my life were like that. I wish my life were like that. I wish I had that. Folks, that's sin. That's sinful. That is not from the Spirit. To spend our days wallowing in pity because God hasn't given me enough stuff. Paul says that kind of envy, that kind of only leads to rivalry because that can only lead to bitterness and jealousy. So it's a big deal. Paul is not afraid to lump that right into sorcery and idolatry and sexual immorality. Also, envy, jealousy. Those have disastrous consequences. And so it's important for us to remember that you don't have to be going out drinking and partying every single weekend to have a serious sin problem. One that we need to pray and help one another to overcome. The battle for Christian contentment is the most difficult battle in the entire Christian life. But we are called to fight that fight. To be content with what we have. And not be envying and being jealous of other people. But this is especially true in the context of our church. One of the easiest ways for us to destroy Redeemer Christian Fellowship is for us to start being jealous and bitter and envying each other. And that's what Paul is seeing in the Galatian churches. And so in the midst of all these sins, of all this rivalry and dissension and fighting, Paul reminds us what is the consequence of those who choose to live in such lifestyles. What does he say in verse 21? He finishes off his list, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So he reminds us this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of every single sin. Although some of these categories are so broad, I think you could make the case he does cover all of them. But his point is, again, these are obvious and this is just, just a quick list, just a quick reminder of what you should already know is not the way that Christians are called to live. Things like these. And then he goes on, I warn you as I warned you before 
that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the works of the flesh, and what is the consequence of the work of the flesh? Damnation. Damnation. And so serious these are to God. Now, this is not a denial of the doctrine that Paul has been laboring to prove throughout the entire book of Galatians, which we are justified by faith alone. Paul is merely reminding us of what he said in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. But salvation is the free gift of God. So what Paul is not saying at the end of verse 21 is that anyone who has ever done one of these things cannot possibly be saved. He's not saying that anyone who falls into this stuff cannot possibly be saved. No, Paul knows and he's proved throughout the book of Galatians that we, when we come to Christ in faith, are forgiven of this kind of behavior. But what you'll notice is the ESV doesn't draw this out as well as other translations do, although they do have a footnote, so they, they still add it in. But what the ESV says that those who do such things, your translation might say those who practice such things. What Paul is addressing here is this is a lifestyle. This is the way people have chosen to live. This is the indulgence of their entire habitual life. So he's not so much talking about Christians who still sin as he is talking about people who have chosen to reject what is good, to chosen to reject God and say, this is the way I'm going to live my life. Paul sees those as two very different categories. Those who make a practice, make a lifestyle, make a habit of such things. And this is why in, in church life, this is why we practice church, mem- or church discipline for unrepentant sin. We don't practice church discipline on repentant sin. But if someone is continually living a lifestyle of sin and showing no evidence of repentance, no desire to repent, just like in 1 Corinthians 5, we go through the steps and eventually we ask that person to leave. Why? Because we are convinced not that Christians will be perfect. We learned last week that Christians are not perfect. But we are convinced that those who practice such things are not indwelled by the Spirit. Those who live in unrepentant lifestyles are not fit for the kingdom of God, which makes them not fit for the church, which is an expression of the kingdom of God. Paul warns us a heavy warning that these sins earn and merit you separation from God. So it's a serious thing. But what's important to remember is that what are these sins? They are the work of the flesh. What does that mean? That those who are fleshly that if that's the root of their tree, then the fruit will be these kinds of behaviors. But Paul says the good news is that if you have the Spirit in you, you have a different kind of root. You're a different kind of tree altogether, which is why he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. And even before we mention any of those virtues, just that phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, is so crucial. It's so crucial to Paul's overall argument. Why? Notice the parallelism. He's comparing the, essentially he doesn't use the word fruit, but the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, to the fruit of the Spirit. So what is he saying? He is staying very consistent with his train of thought throughout Galatians. He agrees with the Judaizers that yes, we do need to care about obeying God. Yes, we do need to care about being in obedience to the law of God, but he is reminding them that they have it completely backward. 
Their understanding is that the, the fruit comes before the root. You obey God's law, and then He will reward you with His Spirit. You obey God, and He will reward you with justification. You obey God, and you will merit salvation. But Paul says, no, it's not, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit comes first, and then comes the fruit. Justification comes first, and then comes the fruit. He already told them uh, rhetorically not long ago, did you receive the Spirit by faith or by works of the law? So in other words, yes, all of these amazing things, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, these amazing things, we are called to live in these things. We are called to walk in these things. We need to pursue these things. But what's Paul's point? There's a prerequisite, which is the Spirit. Living this lifestyle will not earn you the Spirit. You can't do it without Him. We do not receive the Spirit by works, but instead we receive works by the Spirit. Works are not the precondition of justification, but rather justification is the precondition of works. You will not have the fruit of the Spirit if you do not have the root of the Spirit. And so he gives this amazing list of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He essentially just reminds us of who Jesus is. <laughs> how Jesus lived, how Jesus walked among us. I think in Paul's mind, these are largely meant to be somewhat self-evident and obvious as well. One thing that I want to point our attention to is this concept of joy. That one always surprises me. The other ones don't surprise me so much. I, I, I get we need to be self-controlled. We need to master our emotions, master our behaviors. I get that we need to be good and faithful and kind and patient. That, that stuff makes a lot of sense to me. But he would throw in joy. You see, in Paul's mind, to be filled with the Spirit, to be saved by the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus ought to create within us an otherworldly joy that people who do not have the Spirit, who have not been saved by Christ, cannot obtain. And so I would call all of us, especially right now, as our nation is in a, an election year, our nation is in a pandemic, our nation is in government shutdowns, there's appropriate times, very appropriate times to complain. And to be upset and be frustrated. And I'm not taking that away from you. I have felt those things. But I would argue that now is our time as the Christian church to lead the way in joy, not discontent. Can we show people that I have a joy in Christ that transcends government malfeasance? Can we show people that I have a joy through the Spirit that transcends pandemic fear? Can we lead the way in our circumstances of showing people, I have an untouchable joy. You can't touch my joy. Because it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from my circumstances. It comes from what? It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in me. And I wake up every day in the freedom of justification and the joy of forgiveness and the power of the Spirit. What really do I have to get me down today? Again, trust me, I, I am preaching to myself right now. I'm not preaching to you. But I think that it is important for us to be a joyful people, to be a people overflowing with joy that the world can see. 
Those people have something. They have something that I don't. Joy is not an emotion. It's a virtue. Joy is holiness. Again, again, let me qualify one more time. That doesn't mean that there's never a time to be downtrodden and distressed and frustrated and upset. Jesus was perfectly virtuous and it's hard to read the account of the Garden of Gethsemane and find a lot of joy in Jesus. As he's on his knees sweating and crying and begging God, please don't do this to me. He was in so much distress that God had to literally send angels to come and support him. There is a season for everything. There is a season for anger. There is a season for sadness and grief. We are not Buddhists where the joy of the Spirit means we transcend the world and it's impossible to feel pain or fear or anger. We're just trying to transcend human emotions. That's not what I'm saying. But there is an overall disposition of the Christian life that is we ought to be the most joyful people in the world. Why? The Spirit of God lives in me. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And what's the consequence of living like this? Well, Paul says he breaks the parallelism. Notice he doesn't say, live like this and you will earn salvation. The way he said, live like that, you will earn damnation. Because that's not in Paul's category of thought. We're not doing this to earn salvation. But there is a consequence to this. And what does he say? Against such things there is no law. So notice what he's done. He's taken us back to what? Obedience. So the Judaizers who are, who are slandering Paul and accusing Paul of being against the law. That Paul, he just wants you to just live however you want. He thinks the law of Moses has no purpose today. He doesn't think obeying God. He's just all about faith, faith, belief, belief, belief. He doesn't care about how you live. Paul says quite the opposite. I am calling you to live in all of the fruits of the Spirit. And let me remind you of something. If you do this, what will you be in perfect accord with? The law of God. In other words, when the, when the Judaizers accuse Paul of being antinomian, being against the law, Paul says, okay, I've called you to uh, peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what I've been calling you to from the beginning. Show me where the law of God tells you not to do that. And it's obvious. We talked about this last week. Paul is doing the opposite. He is taking them beyond the ceremonial aspects of the law into what Jesus called the weightier issues of the law. He's actually flipping this on their head. And he's saying, it's actually you who don't care about the law of God. Because you're content with outward rites. All you care about is that these people get circumcised and obey the feast days. I care about something so much deeper. The weighty, heavy elements of the law. So Paul is not taking us away from the law. He's not bashing the law. But what he is reminding us of, and this is an important thing for the Judaizers to remember and for us to learn today, is that the law does not have the power to change you. The law can provide a standard for you. But merely providing a standard will not ultimately change you. The, and a, the law has no power in and of itself to create holiness. And that's why the key of this passage is this understanding of being led by the Spirit. The Spirit can do what the law cannot do. That's what Romans 8 says. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, God sent His Son to fulfill the requirements of the law for us. The law is not capable of changing you. 
God can give you his standards all day long. It doesn't mean you have the power or desire to fulfill them. But what Paul is reminding them of is I am more focused on the spirit than the law because it's the spirit who enables me to obey the law. You have made the law your top priority. But what can the law do for you? It can't change you, and it can only condemn you. What I am doing is bringing us to a place of justification, forgiveness, empowerment from the Spirit, and now we can turn to the law. Now we can look at the law. How, how do I obey God? But he is reminding them that he is not at odds with the law, but he is also reminding them that he is not fomenting disobedience to the law. But rather, he is showing us that the law does not have the power to change you. The Spirit of God has the power to change you. So he's given us, he's elaborated on the list that he established last week. There's living according to the flesh, living according to the Spirit. That's what he established last week. And this week, he gave us brief pictures of what each looks like. And he gave us a brief consequence of the consequences of each one. And so all this leads us to what is really the, the, the thesis, if you will, of this section of Scripture. Verses 24 and 25 really focus as the thesis of this sermon. These are the key verses. This is what Paul is driving at. So we've got the flesh, we've got the spirit. Which one are we obligated to? And why are we obligated to it? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul reminded us what the works of the flesh looked like. He reminded us what the flesh is. And then he reminds us what happened when you joined Christ Jesus. What happened when you became and you entered into that union with Christ? What happened then? He reminds us, you didn't just enter into forgiveness. You actually have a union that identifies you with his gospel. So what does that mean? You were crucified. You were hung on a cross in a sense. By your union with Christ, you share in his crucifixion. And Paul says what that means for us is that our understanding of that is that when we died with Christ, the old man, the flesh, died. And then, by faith, when we are made new, regenerated by the Spirit, we now have a new man. And we walk in newness of life. But it makes no sense for us to live in the sinful passions of the flesh because that person's supposed to be dead. That person was supposed to be crucified. So the, the, the general disposition of the Christian is the Christian is someone who has spiritually crucified their flesh, its passions and desires. We nail our old man to the cross. And by the way, keep your marker here. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Paul is not speaking crazy here. He's not making this stuff up. He's not just pulling random metaphors out of the air. This was very much the heartbeat of Jesus' understanding of discipleship. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verse 24. Verses 21 through 23, by the way, 
is Jesus predicting that I will be crucified, I will die, and I will resurrect. And then after Jesus talks about his own crucifixion, his own death, he goes on to say this in verse 24. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, for Jesus, discipleship can be spiritually thought of this way. I crucify myself. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and the Jews understood this imagery. Right? Remember Jesus had to carry his own cross and then eventually he was too weak and someone else had to carry it for him. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means you are holding your own instrument of death and you are marching to your own death. And Jesus says, that's Christian discipleship. You march to your own death so that you can be made new. We take up our cross. The Christian life is a life where every single day we die. We kill our old self. We crucify our passions. We crucify our flesh. And again, you see, the gospel Paul has pulled the gospel into it. The gospel is so much better motivation for obedience than just holding out the law. That's what Paul's doing. He's not just saying, here's the law, obey it. He's saying, Jesus Christ died for sins. It's your job to find union with him and crucify yourself, crucify your own sins. He's using the gospel here as motivation. So as we turn back, what he did in verse 24 is he reminded us of the general position of the Christian life, which is to crucify the flesh, to kill our flesh, to mortify our sin. And then what he reminds us of in 25 is that that is the overall disposition of the Christian, but every single day we have to actually live up to that reputation. Here's what I mean by that. One of the most confusing concepts in the Christian life is this concept of repentance. Because there's a sense in which every Christian is repentant, right? Jesus, the, the gospel proclamation, Jesus' first sermon ever was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without repentance. So every Christian, if they are truly a Christian, has repented of their sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. I've repented of my sins and I've placed my faith and trust in Christ. But here's the issue. I won't actually make you raise your hands. But how many of you sinned yesterday? How many of you sinned this morning? Doesn't sound very repentant, does it? Many of you in this room, I guarantee all of you in this room, would be will you would not be willing to bet that you will not commit a single sin from this moment until the day you die. Doesn't sound very repentant. You're basically guaranteeing that you're going to sin today. You're going to sin tomorrow. So how can you honestly call yourselves repentance? Well, that's because we understand that repentance has sort of a broad understanding and a narrow application. To turn to Christ is this glorious act of repentance. I'm turning from sin and I'm choosing Christ. But that glorious act of repentance has to be lived out in the day-to-day. -day. I have to every day to choose to not obey my flesh choose to, to, to kill my sin. So there's kind of like a broad capital R repentance and there's the small R repentance, everyday repentance. And this understanding of being crucified with Christ or the crucifixion of the flesh is the same thing. By virtue of being a Christian, he says in verse 24, if you belong to Christ, then this is what's stamped over a life. You have died and rose again. 
That's why even in baptism, what does he say in, in, in Romans about baptism? You are buried with Christ and risen again. People who have placed their faith in Christ, who have been baptized, you have died and you have come to new life. But then what does he say in verse 25? If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So there's this understanding of, yes, you have crucified the flesh. That's a past tense action for you. But you need to live that out every day. You need to walk in that every day. So he says in verse 25, if the Holy Spirit has given you life, then you need to take advantage of that. You need to walk according to the Spirit. So we could really summarize this thesis is this, is that our duty as Christians is to mortify our sins and walk by the Spirit. Our duty as those who have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer we who live but Christ in us, those of us who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires because we belong to Christ, we need to engage in the daily work of mortifying of our sins, of walking in step with the Spirit, of obeying the Spirit, and pursuing God's law. And so I conclude by reciting where we began. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This text is calling us to rage war against the flesh. By the power of the Spirit of God in the freedom of the forgiveness of the gospel, we walk by the Spirit, we crucify the flesh, we mortify our sin, and we make this our everyday work.